Welcome to The Nature Photographer on Wild and Exposed, your source for the behind-the-scenes secrets of today's top photographers working in wildlife, conservation, and fine arts. The Nature Photographer is produced in collaboration with NANPA, the North American Nature Photography Association. Thanks for joining us. So welcome to the Nature Photographer podcast brought to you by NAMPA and Wild and Exposed. I'm Dawn Wilson, your host, along with Jason Loftus, Ron Hayes, and today we have Susie, Susie Esterhaus. Um, so we're going to talk a lot about what Susie works on, and her specialty is absolutely adorable baby animals. So she does a lot of wildlife photography, so I'm pretty excited about talking to her. I've admired her work for a long time, so... But as we always do, we always kind of talk about what everybody's been up to real quick. Um, I know I'm still here in Louisiana, but getting ready to head back to Colorado really soon. So I'm pretty excited about that. I desperately miss the snow. Um, but by the time this airs, it should be past snow season. So Susie, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to? I know you've had some travel lately that's been, sounds like it's been pretty fun. Yeah, I just got back from Botswana. Um, I was doing baby meerkats which was pretty awesome. So I was on call. I was actually supposed to go to Costa Rica, as you know, and there was a, a baby sloth actually born in a wine bar, which I was super excited about. But then I was on call for baby meerkats, and then the meerkat mom gave birth at the same time. So I had to very quickly choose, and I chose uh, baby meerkats and flew out at the drop of a hat to Botswana, to the Kalahari, in a place called the Mahadi Mahadi, sorry, Mahadi Hadi, to be there with them. I don't think I've ever seen a, a baby meerkat photo or live. <laughs> they're adorable. They're very tiny, very small, but they're really, really lovely. And meerkats are absolutely insane little creatures. They're just completely psycho. They're sort of your typical zero to hero. They're doing either absolutely nothing or doing absolutely everything. So they're really fun to be with photographically because it's highly, highly productive being around them. Fun. You've actually been around meerkats quite a bit, haven't you? Yeah, this will be my fourth shoot with them, but I hadn't had the opportunity to work with young uh, pups before. So this was the first time working with a litter, which was really fun. Um, but yeah, and it's it's always really very entertaining being with them. And it can actually be quite annoying because they try to get on you and they're trying to basically just get to the tallest point. So they're using you as a lookout because someone's always on sentry duty looking out and um they will go to anything high. So if that's a human being, they'll jump on a human being and try to get up to the highest point on you. So they often will try to climb on your back or your head. And it can actually be a little annoying because you obviously want them on the other side of the camera. Um, and so, of course, with the little pups, it was very cute because they couldn't really climb very well yet. So they spent a lot of time trying to climb my knees, which was quite charming. <laughs> That would explain why you always see photos of them like on cameras and on top of people's heads. And Yeah, they're not trying to interact with people at all. They're just trying to get high. That's really, truly. And it's sort of, you know, you just kind of become part of their, you know, landscape and part of their habitat. And my assistant, actually, who was with me, she was leaning down doing a, a selfie video with a selfie stick. Um, not a selfie video, but she was using a selfie stick to, to film one of the babies and mom popped up on her back. And then because she had sort of she was leaning and she had a gentle slope, the babies could actually get up on her back, too. So at one point I was like, Becky, mom is suckling the pups on your back right now. Don't move. It's hilarious. It's very entertaining. Oh, funny. Behavior wise, they remind me a little bit of prairie dogs. But yeah, prairie dogs are not. I mean, they they stand up. There's always somebody on sentry duty, if not three or four. Yeah. But there's always there's always some standing somewhere looking out of the hole. And meerkats remind me of that, but they're just a lot more. I mean, they have a lot more dexterity and they're they're a lot more social. Yeah, they're they're a lot more psycho than prairie dogs. I think. <laughs> and also, too, I don't know how prairie dogs do as moms, but meerkats are pretty shit moms, which is not, you know, not the best. But it's actually quite charming because it does take a village to raise the meerkat pups. So they have all the members of the mob will take part in the parenting. And mom is essentially just a milk machine. And she's really focused on foraging because she's got to mm -hmm. keep producing that milk. So there's not, I think we actually had the worst meerkat mom on the planet as well, which didn't help. Like, I think she was the worst of the worst, but they're, they're not very good moms. Yeah. I would say that that's probably pretty similar with prairie dogs. They, they <laughs> kind of operate under the premise that 
if we lose all these, we'll just have some more. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> so, so that kind of, go ahead, Ron. Well, I was just going to say, we kind of had this plan before and, or we're talking about it before, but then you had these two opportunities come up and yeah. so it was worth putting it off and, and kind of waiting to have this conversation. And I was, yeah, should have been in a wine bar with a sloth baby. That that would have been pretty chill. But I, that's what I was looking forward to talking to you. So I was a little <laughs> bit disappointed. <laughs> yeah, definitely. We definitely had a, some scheduling. First, it was snow. Ron got stuck in snow. Oh, we yeah. rescheduled for that, and then we rescheduled for Costa Rica, and then rescheduled for a couple other things. But we've made it work, and I'm I know. so. But you know, and that kind of you know that talks a lot about wildlife photography. It's not you know these are not studio setups where you you know what your scenario is going to be. It's it's you know things happen at, at a moment's notice, and just like you said, you flew off to Botswana as you got the news, and so that's just it's the nature of wildlife photography. Right, right. And normally I'm pretty good in terms of researching and being properly prepared, but. This one I slacked a little bit and I was and really made the decision last minute. And my assistant was actually coming from Costa Rica and she's like, should I bring my rubber boots? I'm like, you know, Becky, we're going to the Kalahari Desert. You can leave the rubber boots in the jungle. And then we arrive and there's a flood and, you know, it's rainy season. And I should have been. I mean, come on. I've been doing this for a long time. I should have been more prepared. I figured, you know, I knew it was rainy season, but how much rain could the Kalahari really get? No, it was completely flooded out. They got a third of the rainfall in one night. So we wound up like actually walking 20 Ks through mud and water every day to get to and from the meerkats. So, and, you know, the entire time, like, it was like, oh, I really wish I had my rubber boots. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, it's always unexpected and, you know, always these curveballs that you get thrown and then especially if you're not properly prepared. Yeah. So you do a lot of photography with baby animals. Talk yeah. a little bit about how that kind of came to be. I was just, uh, God, as a kid, I was a weird kid and I was absolutely obsessed with animals, but in particular baby animals. Um, I used to actually tear pages out of Ranger Rick and stick them on my wall. And I used to tell my mom and dad that I would go live in a tent in Africa. And I idolized people like Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey and a filmmaker named Hugo Van Lawick who, um, worked in the Serengeti. So I really just, uh, yeah, I had this sort of weird thing as a kid. And I think everyone thought, you know, she'll grow out of it. And I never did. And I just, you know, laser focused my whole life. I don't really know why. I think, you know, with the baby animal thing, it's it's my mom always says, like, it shows you like this career shows you. You did not choose it like I was just programmed to do it. But I think with I thought about it a lot and thought about why I'm so passionate about baby animals. And I think part of it is the the vulnerability and the innocence of of that age. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a lot of dramas too, right? Because babies are learning how to live life and, and how to hunt and dealing with danger and predation and all these things. So there's, it's a great sort of center stage to use in the, you know, cycle of life drama kind of swirling around them. But also at the same time too, um, I've always been drawn to innocence and vulnerability. And I think in our culture, there's not a lot of room for that. And so, these images that I bring home, if they can, you know, make people feel a certain way and and open up and sort of soften even the hardest of hearts, then maybe we can, you know, get people to actually really care about these animals and the, the threats they're facing as species and, and maybe even relate to them as individuals, right? Not just as species. And I feel like um, images of baby animals are one way to, to really open up people. It's There's a lot of focus placed on you know, the adults and in many species, the adult males mm -hmm. and the, the wild mothers don't get enough credit, number one, but just the entertainment value of watching yeah. these younger animals. You know, I, I enjoy swift fox every year. I find multiple dens and just watching them. It's just yeah. pure entertainment. You can sit there and it's better than any TV show you could possibly have on. Yeah. And deer, and yeah. deer yeah. elk calves, you know, they're all the same, just waiting for an opportunity to play. Yeah. 
They're incredibly entertaining. And they're, the play, the learning, I mean, babies are usually doing something that's interesting and photo worthy, right? So, I mean, there's obviously with working with newborns, there's a lot of wait time, you know, so I'll, you know, spend 10 days staring at a termite mound waiting for a leopard cub to pop its head out. And it may or may not ever do that. But when the animals are there and they are present, they're usually um, incredibly entertaining and really productive photographically as well. And then also for telling a story too, right? That telling the growing up story, it's such a personal story because you get um, so involved in these animals' lives and what they're going through. And you have these experiences that you, you know, in some way share with them and being able to pull people in to that through imagery, um, I think, you know, again, goes back to people being able to relate to these animals. Like I always say that the moms are just like human moms, right? There's some, there's some good moms, there's some bad moms, there's, you know, good days and bad days. Like sometimes the moms I work with are just having a bad day, you know, and, and these are animals that have moods and personalities just like humans do. And I think we so often see them as species. And so one way to really see them as, as these individuals with, with personalities is by telling the story of, of one individual, which is what I'm most passionate about, is following one animal as they grow up. You know, so like with the leopard cubs, it was over two years, I think six different shoots over a two year period with those two cubs as they grew up until they reached um, independence. And that's my favorite kind of work is that really like in-depth, long, long days in the field and weeks and months with the same animals. I like that idea with with baby animals, because you do get to, you know, everything from, you know, the cute little things that, you know, and just like our own pets and things. You want them as puppies or as kittens so that you can see them grow up and you see them mature and you see how they how things affect them and how they you know then they cycle into their own offspring and yeah yeah absolutely and you know and you see things that you sometimes don't want to see right I mean not all babies survive in nature and I've had so many of my subjects die over the years and it's heartbreaking um and you do you do get attached and you do feel emotional when terrible things happen to them but you know that that is nature and that is what happens so there's often a lot at stake too right in terms of um obviously for the moms um but for your emotions as well so you get pretty involved and pretty wrapped up in what's going on so what's your favorite experience with a baby animal either a favorite or a favorite animal in particular or Maybe you don't even want to pinpoint one. It's always like the one I'm currently working on is my favorite. <laughs> um, you know, the leopards I were my most recent one. I think one of the big highlights of my career was working on a wild tiger den in, in, in India. That was really it was a challenge, first and foremost, because it was very difficult to get permissions from the government to be able to do the project um, because it's, you know, tigers are a very, very closely guarded species. They're endangered, obviously. And then being with uh, a wild mom with cubs that are very, very young is a privilege that they've only given a handful of filmmakers and photographers over the years. And so just trying to to get access and, and meeting the right people and then also um, finding the right female to work with with any species that's always an issue and then it was about 18 months of being on call for the right female to give birth and that's just basically like at the drop of the hat um i you know will cancel everybody in my life knows that i'm always on call for something and you know christmas goes out the window if if somebody gives birth that i'm waiting for um, and the only thing I really obviously can't cancel really in my life literally are the photo tours that I do. Everything else is just like with the caveat of like, hey, but I'm on call for this species. And, you know, sometimes it takes 18 months to two years to come to fruition. And for the tigers, it did. But with the tigress that I worked with, it was it was just an incredible project just being with her. I spent two months with her at her den. Um, and there were long periods of time, lots of challenges, long periods of time where I didn't get anything. There was a, a period of 10 days solid where we didn't even see the cubs. It was during monsoon heat. So she kept the cubs in a cave and only took them out when it was cool enough, when there was a breeze. So when things got really, really hot, she kept them really, 
just deep, deep inside that cave. So there was a lot of, of waiting um, and a lot of um, strategizing. Even just finding the den was really challenging. But um, it was an absolutely incredible experience being with her. She had four cubs. Um, and so being with with her while she raised her cubs over a two-month period of time felt um, incredibly special. And again, you know, with tigers, it was something that was incredibly rare. Um, so I felt quite honored and privileged to have that experience with her. So Pretty tell me about tiger moms. Yeah. How protective was she? She's, you know, she was really relaxed around people. Um, she was really mellow. Um, and I never had um, any sketchy experiences with her. Ti you know, obviously the tiger mothers are incredibly fierce mm -hmm. um, with so the big cat species that I've worked with, knock on wood, I have, um, you know, one of the things about working with baby animals is you have to start with a female that's habituated. But even a female that's habituated, when she's got little, little ones, she can be really on edge. Like, I kind of think about it as like, you know, the human moms, when they come home from the hospital and they go into, I always think of this when I'm at dens, you know, if you've ever been in a house where there's an infant, a new infant, and it's like everything's really hushed and super protective. And if any danger ever entered that house, there'd be some major mama bear stuff going on. And it's the same exact thing in the wild. And so sometimes you have even the most cool habituated moms and you get them with newborns and they can turn, you know, absolutely psycho or just certain moments. Like I had one really sketchy thing happen with my leopard um, family that I recently worked with where um, we did absolutely nothing wrong. We did absolutely everything right, but animals are very unpredictable. We gave her a lot of space. She had been laying in a clearing, suckling her cubs, and then her cubs went into these small trees to climb the small trees. And um, as they were climbing through the trees, they were sort of getting a little closer and closer to the car. So I pulled up and you know, I was using my 500 mil lens when I was photographing her, suckling them. But by the time they came, you know, dangling through the trees for, you know, 30 minutes or so they were playing, they were progressively making their way closer and closer to the vehicle. And then one of them fell out of the, the tree. And it was, you know, definitely not something that was going to ever hurt the cub. But the cub kind of landed on the ground with like a little just kind of poof. And then the cub was startled a little bit. And so the cub immediately ran underneath the car, which is the first time they'd ever done that. And big cats in Africa do have a habit of sometimes going under the cars, particularly the cubs. They get very curious. And then other animals use it for shade as well. But this was the very, very first time the cubs had ever done it. And they were about five weeks old. So still blue eyed, tiny, you know, bouncy, adorable. So they started to go under the car and play under the car. And at that point, you know, there's not a lot you can do in South Africa. The, the vehicles are completely open, right? So it's not like East Africa where there's windows and there's a top. There's no top. And so there's not a lot you can do to um, discourage the cubs from doing that, because if you make any loud noises, you're going to piss mom off real bad. And so they're playing. And then mom does this really very cute, sexy thing where she gets up and she kind of stretches a little bit and she walks over very nonchalantly like nothing's going on. And she walks right over to my um, door, my passenger door, and plops herself down right under the door and growls the deepest most horrible growl I have ever heard. And I was absolutely terrified. And so the, the guy that I had who's a tracker and a guide, he's really, really good. He was like, okay, slowly slink down. And I did, I very slowly pulled my body down. And then he was like, pull the lens in. And I very slowly, and the whole time she's growling, she hasn't stopped growling. And all I can say is Delta, she's really growling. Delta, she's really growling. I was on like repeat record. And he was like, I know, I know. <laughs> and, um, and this was not like a hiss, you know, this was like a full on guttural growl that I had never heard in my life. And so eventually, like, my head really, truly wound up in his lap. I was terrified. I was trying to think, okay, I'll put my back to her. So if she jumps in, she's going to get my back. And it was this dilemma. I could, I was watching his hand on the key the whole time. And it was this dilemma of like, do I reverse? What do I do? Do I reverse? What do I do? And, um, and at that point, the cubs had come out from under the 
for the vehicle and we're just kind of playing around mom. And he just very slowly put us into reverse and we pulled out and mom just watched us leave. And, um, and that was it. And she never growled at us after that. That was the, and the Cubs continued to play occasionally under the car. But, um, you know, again, there's, there's not a lot you can do when you've done everything right. Animals are unpredictable. Females are very protective. They're protective of their young. And, um, and sometimes, you know, things like that can happen. But that's the only time I've ever had anything knock on wood sketchy happen with a big cat mom. That would be a little nerve wracking for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was fully terrified. Like that, you know, that primal thing of like, when you feel like, I don't know if you've ever had this, but twice in my career where you feel like prey and I'm like, and I was literally almost salivating because I wanted to throw up. I, it was this primal guttural, just like, oof, this is not good. My whole body knew it was bad. <laughs> I've honestly had, you know, more intense experiences with servants than I have with predators of any kind. With what? With, sir, so like moose and bison yeah cow elk they get really protective and i've been more nervous at times giving them a lot more space than than yeah uh, at times predator predators tend to be a little bit easier to read but yeah a mom can throw her ears back and yeah start swinging hooves just at the drop of a hat right yeah yeah i would agree with you on that i've seen some pretty crazy elk around yeah and it's just, and like you said, Susie, it, it, it's the full gamut. I mean, there are some cow elk that they give birth and they're like, you're on your own and they wander off and just do what they want to do. And then there's others, especially the newer ones, you know, the younger moms, it might be their first time or something that just, you know, a, the, a piece of grass blows the wrong way. And they're like, what was that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, the other, the other thing I was thinking of when you were talking about the watching their, their development and that, especially spending you know, two years with a certain set of cubs, for example. But it's pretty amazing to me how much time you spend in the field with these animals, and then you start to see very similar behaviors too. I mean, you can tell that that's just a little kid's quote unquote, and that you know, and their behaviors are very similar to a small child, right? And then as they get a little older, maybe that second year, third year, they start to become a little bit more like a teenager, even in their behaviors, right? Yeah. And it's it's really interesting and fun to watch. So I bet you, I bet you've enjoyed that a ton. Well, and I'm sure as you guys know, sometimes the subadults are the ones you have to worry about, right? Like with, with yep. brown bears, subadult brown bears can be real menace. Bears um, for sure. Yep. That first yeah. little bit of testosterone and right. those yep. subadult males are curious about everything and they're testing everything. And right. that's when they get dangerous right. for sure. Yeah. yeah. That's that big thing. That curiosity at that age is just, yeah. they just keep pushing the boundaries because they haven't, either they haven't been told no, or they haven't been told no. Strongly enough or. Right. But, you know, having said all this, like I really had so few bad experiences with animals. I could probably count them on one hand in my 20 years of working. And, um, you know, all my bad experiences in the field have been with men. They're they're not with animals. They're with men. They're with humans. (laughs) Not just male humans, but. No, actually, they, human. uh, (laughs) my dangerous situations sadly have been with male humans. But. um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about physical danger. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah sad, sadly, uh, Jason and Ron, it's, I think almost any female nature photographer can, can explain stories like that. That it's just, yeah. it's an uncomfortable feeling that you, you, you just kind of always watch yourself a little bit more. That's why I started Girls Who Click. Nature photography, especially wildlife photography is very heavily male dominated. I mean, there's a lot of guys out there. I don't know how many times it's been, you know, you're in a line of a dozen photographers and there's two or three women and the rest are all guys. But that's also how I know a lot of people. I mean, it's from being in those groups. And as I've gotten to know the guys that are out there and I've developed friendships from those interactions, I almost feel like there's a little bit of protection too. You know, they start looking out for you as well. Oh, I haven't had that experience. No, no. No, I haven't. But well, that's not good. Yeah, we're working probably working in different places. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe, yeah. You, you, you do a lot more international us. than I do. That's for sure. So that might have something. I yeah, know, has something to do with it. International, yeah, yeah, for sure. So maybe just expand on that just a little bit. Maybe I'm stepping in something, but are you talking? <laughs> are you talking 
like because they they tend to push things and put the whole group into situations that are not a, a good situation. No, I'm talking about sexual harassment. Oh, and, okay. And you know, just uh, you know, physical safety issues. Um, you know, I've had sketchy things happen in the field where I've been, you know, attacked by people and, um, you know, just had really bad stuff happen. Um, and then in addition to that, just the, you know, you know, with the, the, it's a, it's a loaded bag. You are stepping into something (laughs) and, and, you know, there's the sexual harassment, there's the sexism, um, you know, sexism is so alive and well in wildlife photography. Um, it is absolutely rampant. And so that, again, really goes back to, um, you know, what a huge part of my life is now is Girls Who Click, um, in addition to being a a wildlife photographer, to try to change that for young women coming into this field. Um, I think it's a challenge being in any male-dominated field, but in particular, I think wildlife photography has this sort of um, old-fashioned, old-boys club kind of machismo culture that, um, you know, sort of like big camera, big gun kind of thing um, that I think, you know, is is slowly dying out, but not fast enough. So, um, so yeah, the, it's it runs the gamut, but it's definitely being a woman in this career is is not easy. So talk about what talk about what led you because we've had some of your mentors actually on the show before and talk Mm -hmm. about the program a little bit but what led you to create it and kind of what was the premise that you created it upon yeah that makes sense so yeah you know i so i've always um I've been very aware, obviously, when you get into this career, you're aware of the fact that you're a minority. And but my kind of MO with it was I'm just going to kind of bury my head in the sand and just keep going, you know, very good at at defending myself and at um, sort of holding my own, so to speak, in group situations as a woman, but um, really not interested in creating change because I was just really focused on trying to make it in this career, right? Obviously, this is a hard career to make it in. And so you have to be kind of laser focused and just kind of one track mind. But then once I sort of had started to make a living in this, and I think also like turning 40, there's, I don't know about you guys, but there's something that happens where it's just like, I kind of want to change things for the better in the world and do more. I'd always been doing a lot for conservation, but I wanted to do something for like, my fellow humans and um, wanting to sort of be of service more to the world. And I started kind of feeling those feelings and I was doing a lot of spiritual work within myself at the same time. And right at that moment, I was like primed for it. Um, There was this woman who, I wish I could remember her name, I could look back, but there was a newspaper photographer who worked in um, the Midwest somewhere and she wrote this incredibly brave blog post about what it was like being a woman um, in the field and how much sexism there still was in and and this she's just doing general news she wasn't wildlife specific and the patronizing attitudes that she had experienced and and some of the the difficulties she had had and I read that and it really spoke to me and I thought wow this girl's really brave and I thought this is this is pretty awesome and then I don't know what what sparked me to do this because I never read comments, but I started reading the comments in this blog post. So the blog post was picked up by Petapixel, which I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's where I read it. I didn't read it on hers. I read it on Petapixel. And I started reading these comments and the comments were horrible. They were like really sexist and just like, oh my God, the worst of the worst. And I And I was really pissed about it. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to share this. So I shared it on my Facebook page and I was like, hey, you know, this girl's so brave and she, what she's experienced, I've experienced all of, and she's not even getting into the really hard stuff like sexual harassment and stuff. She's just like grazing the surface. And I was like, kudos to her. And then the comments that were on my feed, like my followers on Facebook, how there were many that were sexist and loads of naysayers, tons of people saying, no, 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 this doesn't happen in wildlife photography. Or like, I take my wife out all the time and she never experiences this and you know stuff just so much naysaying and then some outright sexist comments and i'm like these are my facebook followers and i was super pissed off and i thought well 
what is one thing that I can do? And I just got, I just wanted to do one little thing that might just create a little bit of change. And so I thought, well, I'm going to run a free workshop for teen girls here. And, and I decided to do it in Monterey, which is my general area for wildlife photography. And, um, and I never in my wildest dreams thought I would do anything beyond that. I just thought I'd run this cute little workshop for teen girls and I ran it. And first of all, the community support I got, I got everybody wanting the boat operator wanted to donate because it was free. I was going to pay for the boat. And he's like, no, I'm going to donate. The community came around with so much support and then the demand, it would like filled instantly. And I was like, okay, there are a lot of young women interested in this. And I, you know, and so I then started leading these little workshops and that's kind of what I thought I would do. But what happened is my female colleagues reached out to me. They were like, we love what you're, do what you're doing and um, we totally agree with you. And if there's anything that we can do to support you, let me know. And so at the time I was just running these workshops and there was nothing. But then one of the things that happened is when I was running them, I got really um, I was profoundly affected by the girls. Like I, I figured I'd be inspiring to them because I'm the pro photographer. Right. But I didn't realize that the inspiration would be like both ways. And I went to bed that night with my heart so full after being with these girls all day and all their dreams and aspirations and their insecurities and all these things. And I, and this guy that I was with at the time, he was like, can you make this a bigger part of your life? And I'm like, well, you know, I still, I have to be, if we all work hard trying to make a living at this. I can't go around donating my time doing this all the time. But I thought, wow, what if I reached out to those women that had reached out to me and we created this network of free workshops throughout the country and I decided, okay, I'm gonna start a nonprofit. So I had my assistant look into how do we start a nonprofit? We did it ourselves and um, and we just started it. And we started it with the concept of these workshops. And then last year we, we brought in the ambassador program where after we had 24 partner photographers join to lead these workshops, which used to be in person and now they're online because of COVID, we asked these 24 partner photographers who are all some of the top women in the business, we said, would you be willing to be mentors to young women between the ages of 16 and 30? Because previously we'd only served girls between 13 and 18 in these free workshops. But now we were able to serve these young women that were sort of falling through the cracks where they, they weren't actually established enough to be partner photographers leading workshops, but also not young enough to be in the workshops. And so we were able to to engage these women, these young women that are all aspiring photographers. And I think some of them really are going to be, some of them are already making money with it and they're going to be um, big in the industry and they all have mentors. Um, so we started this mentorship program that's our ambassador program. So that's kind of where it all began and it's grown beyond my first intentions and totally beyond my wildest dreams. Like I never thought I'd start a nonprofit and it would be anything like this, but we're doing it. So we're very much kind of winging it. We're small. It's me and my part-time um, COO. And then we've got um, a couple really integral volunteers that help us with like the blog and social media and stuff. We're very small. We're like shoestring budget. And so most of it's all volunteer driven. But mm -hmm. it's great because it's really struck a chord with women, I think, um, and also really created awareness too with men that this is going on because I think, you know, so many men just don't realize that it's going on. Like, so, you know, so many photographers that I absolutely love that are buddies of mine and they're like, God, I didn't realize it was such an issue. Um, and so really creating awareness that, that this stuff is, is happening. Um, and then hopefully these women who are coming into it, our ambassadors aren't going to have to deal with the same, you know, crap that I've dealt with and that so many of our other partner photographers have dealt with. Well, and the other thing, too, is that it gets these girls, it builds up their confidence to, to not shy away from it. So they continue to pursue it. Because I think that's one of the things is that some women have shied away from the, the, the comfort levels of being out in the field with a lot of men. So they've said, you know, maybe I'll do another type of photography or I just won't do photography at all. It you can know, be very and, intimidating to be in the field with a lot of men. I totally agree with you. Yeah. When you're out so, yeah, it can be really scary. Yeah. 
So if they're younger, you know, at that 18, 20 year old, you know, they're they're impressionable. They're in college. They're trying to figure out exactly what that what it is they want to do career wise. They they and they are really good photographers. There are a lot of phenomenal photo- female photographers at that, yeah. in that age range. Yeah. They'll continue to pursue it and not be turned turned off by it just because of, you know, different situations. Yeah. And then also to the resilience, too. We're teaching these girls resilience that if there are sexist comments made that, you know, you can rise above that and keep going. Right. Um, If there's anything I've been in my career, it's been persistent and resilient because I just never really let it phase me. I just kept going. Not that it wasn't painful, but I just kept going. So we've talked about Girls Who Click. Um, Hang on, sorry. Can I ask just one more question? I think yeah. it's, a, it's an amazing program. Um, sure. Have you been able to, do you have um, any male mentors in the program or is it all females? No. So it's very much because we, you know, we are talking about sexism and we're talking about a lot of female issues. Our mentors are all women. We do have male advisory board members that are, have been champions for women in this for women in this field, like um, Clay Bolt, Sebastian Kinner Connect, Roy Toft. I think all these guys are NAMPA members, um, and they've been really supportive. And they've always been very inclusive um, in terms of women coming into the industry. And so these guys will do they do really generous things, like they do portfolio reviews for some of our girls. Um, so whereas we feel like it's appropriate, it's more appropriate that women are actually mentoring these girls, we can engage um, male photographers in other ways, like asking them to do portfolio reviews or asking them to just spread the word about what we're doing um, and just generally support us. And that's something that um, has been really nice. There haven't been that many men that have reached out, but there have been some that have. And, you know, I think also, too, for men, it can be intimidating to reach out to a female organization, right? Like, do they would they be inclusive of me? Do they need me? Right. And that kind of thing. And so I think that's, you know, part of the reason why we haven't had more men reach out, because I certainly know particularly a lot of the younger photographers, not that this doesn't happen with young men. It does still. But it is getting better. And I see that in the younger photographers being much more inclusive of women and also more inclusive of diversity as well, right? Because let's face it, this is a white male dominated career. Um, and so being, a- being able to be more inclusive of diversity in general. And that's one of the things that Girls Who Click is all about. Our ambassador program is 60% diverse. And I'm really proud of that um, because we're trying to bring in some, some non-white faces. Uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks I think for- it's important for the, I think it's important, right? I mean, I, I'll be honest with you I love it. on a personal level. I don't know that I was as aware that this was as big a deal and a big a problem. Yeah. Um, so, you know, forgive my ignorance, but um, absolutely. I think it's important for other males in the industry to understand that it is an issue and that is there ways that they can contribute and help. Right. So that's why I was yeah. asking the question. Yeah. Thank you. No, I think yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, Girls Who Click, I think, is a phenomenal initiative, and I know it's it's growing, and I'm inter- I'm really curious to see just how big it will continue to grow. But you have a lot of other things on your plate too. So we've talked. So you've been doing international travel. You've been doing um, the Girls Who Click program. You're doing some different projects in particular. But you've had a book come out last year, and you have another book coming out in just a couple of weeks. So by the time this podcast airs, that book will be out. So why don't you talk a little bit about those projects? Yeah, so my um, I have I do a lot of children's books, and I my most recent children's book is My Wild Life, which came out in October, and that's for kids age seven to eleven, and it just basically is about my job and what it's like, um, and some behind the scenes photos and stories, and um, how you know sort of how I started and what my daily life is like, what my field work is like, and then also um, how I use my imagery to give back and raise money for conservation, which I think is really important um, for particularly when you're talking to young people aspiring to be um, in this industry is to we do this with girls who click as well, but all young people I talk to, it's like this isn't just about collecting pretty pictures. This is about making a difference. And so I'm really proud because my business through my tours and my prints and my books, I've been able to raise about two hundred thousand dollars for conservation so far. And I just want that number to keep growing. So like 
every book project I do, I do my wildlife will go, um, 30% goes to Girls Who Click and then New on Earth, which I'll tell you about in a sec, 30% of that is going to Wildlife Conservation Network. And so I'm really proud of, um, you know, using images for, for creating good, not just awareness wise, but actually we can, we can actually use these to create cash, right? Which is really important for, for conservation projects. So new on earth is my latest project and that will be, it's a, a photo book. So not a kid's book. Um, and it's a collection of my, uh, life's work. So it's just, um, a collection of all my baby animal, mom and baby animal pictures, um, that I've taken throughout the world. And it has, um, extended captions and, um, yeah, I'm really proud of it. That's a project that I've wanted to do my whole life. Um, I think everybody, you know, when they're young and getting into this field, they dream of, of having a, a book that's a collection of their life's work. And um, it's something that I worked on for many, many years. Um, I had an agent shop it around um, for years before it actually came to fruition and got to a publisher that wanted to do it. And um, so I'm, I'm really proud of it. It's very much a passion project um, for me. Yeah. So that's coming out March 16th. Do you stay busy? <laughs> yes, I stay very busy. Yes. I guess yeah. the other part, part of the whole, and I, I think any nature photographer or wildlife photographer has to do this. They have to find multiple streams of revenue and ways to kind of stay afloat. It's not just one, one aspect that, that keeps you going. Um, and another aspect that you've, you've mentioned a couple of times are tours. You do uh, tours as well. Yeah. I love tours. Um, so much of what I do is solo, you know, cause you can't like take a, a group of people out to stare at a termite mound and wait for a baby to peer for 10 days and, you know, <laughs> pee in they, water bottles and do all the check out. Stuff. Yeah. No they one's, no one's going to so really fast. sign up for that. Right. And so um, I, much of what I do is solo. Um, and I love being on my own and I love being with animals, but I also love people. I'm quite a social person. Um, and so I love being around people. And I think there's something magical that happens when you're with people that have the same interest and the same passion. And, um, and you can get people, we've all had this experience where you're shooting with people in the field and they may not be people you would be friends with normally in life, although a lot of my clients are, and we're very similar, but there's just this incredible bonding thing that takes place to be with people who actually get you. Because let's face it, like most of us, we're not surrounded by friends and family that really get, at least me, like a lot of my friends, they love me, but they don't necessarily like really get exactly why I do what I do. Um, and so I think being able to be with a group of people and to be out on location photographing, it truly is just a lot of fun. So I look at tours as it is hard work, but it's a lot of fun for me to be with really cool people. All of my, I've, I have a lot of regulars that have traveled with me for many years, which I'm very grateful for. And because of that, they feel like old friends or even some of them extended family members. And um, they're kind, thoughtful people. So I, I'm in a great position where, you know, knock on wood, I'm able to travel with people that I choose to travel with, which is really just very lovely. And also they they know each other because, you know, they've traveled with me before. You know, I do have new clients sometimes, but it's just really, it's nice. It feels like um, a group of friends going off on safari in Africa together. So I love my tours. And of course, you know, they're an important part of, of having a business um, as a wildlife photographer. Um, but I've always gravitated to them because I'm, you know, I enjoy teaching people and enjoy working with people one on one. And I also enjoy the um, the social aspect at the same time that that tours give. Do you so. lead them just in Africa or do you go other places too? No, I do all over the world. So I do, usually I do three a year. 2022, I'm going to have like six or seven because of freaking COVID backing everything <laughs> into 2022. But I try to only do three a year. So I have time for the magazine stories that I do. Um, but yeah, and I and what I usually do is I do one Africa one and then two in wherever random place that I uh, want to take people to and I want to go. So um, in 2020, a good example is, again, 2022 is action packed, but 2022 will have two Africa tours. 
one underwater with whales in Tonga, one polar bear tour, um, one spirit bear tour, and one emperor penguin tour. So a lot of a lot of variety, um, and uh, and in terms of subject matter, but also in terms of like accommodation and stuff. Like a lot of my Africa tours are very luxurious. We don't go to the camps because they're luxurious, but it just so happens to be that like the best camps in Botswana have the best wildlife. So it tends to be high end luxury. And then my um, emperor penguin tour, which is not cheap, but we camp on ice. And so various levels of like accommodation and stuff. Yeah. Oh, fun. So yeah, they are fun. Just for everyone listening. So yes. you hear people talk about workshops and, and tours and they're yeah. two very distinctly different things. Could you just explain for everyone what they could expect if they go on a tour with you? Yeah. So I tend to, you know, rather than having organized um, classes or seminars during the workshop, what I tend to do is it tends to be more informal where I will work with clients one-on-one as they need it. And then we may have some group um, portfolio reviews and maybe some, I might give a group talk on uh, Photoshop or Lightroom throughout the tour, but there's not like teaching sessions throughout the day. I think that's the big difference where the workshops usually have like teaching sessions where people are actively teaching, whereas I mine is much more casual. And that suits my clients because my clients tend to be anywhere from like total beginner, like I, I've even had clients come with the camera still in the box, totally fine. And um, to, you know, guys that have been shooting for 20 years and, you know, they they bring around 800 mils and um, and they go with me, not because I'm going to teach them anything, but because I'm going to put them in, in the best opportunities and they're happy with that. And so it tends to suit my clients to have things rather informal. Some clients need a lot from me in terms of instruction and other clients really just don't need any instruction at all and they're mm-hmm. not interested. So, yeah. Yeah. And what, you know, I wanted you to describe that because when people ask, yeah, you know, there's a lot of confusion about most of the time the two terms are considered synonymous and the expectation yeah. is you know when when I go on a tour I'm going to be instructed you're going to teach me about wildlife yeah. with the photography excuse me you're going to teach me about the photography yeah as well as give me some insight into the behaviors of the wildlife for the subject that we're yeah. going after and so it's not you know a lot of times when you're leading a tour you're going to shoot alongside people. And while you may call out exposure, that kind of thing, you're there to, to be a participant also, whereas a workshop, you know, that leader is focused on everyone else first and may not even have a camera in their hand. Yeah. Yeah. So what I always tell new clients is I'm never going to step in front of you for a photo. I'm going to shoot alongside you. So I will be shooting. Mm -hmm. We're shooting together. Um, yeah. So, and then the exception to that would be my Monterey private workshops. I teach all day for those, Sure. but those are private one-on-one one days, but generally my photo tours are just tours. Mm-hmm. It is important to kind of let, let your, your attendees in, in these groups know ahead of time that you know, you're not going to be the first one out ahead of them. You're not going to be the last one out holding them up that you're there to help them, but yeah, you're, you're there to experience it just as much because it you learn from it every time too. You continue. I know in the workshops that I do, every time I go out, I'm still learning. Even if I am with, with clients, it's still new observations, new behaviors, new locations, new, you know, there's always something new that we experience. I think if you're not learning, your career is done, right? That's exactly. the day your career ends is when you stop learning. I learn from my clients all the time. I love it. Yeah. And you know what's so, you know what's funny that's happened to me that's just popped into my head is that since I started Girls Who Click, I've gotten a couple emails from guys going, "I heard you only let women on your tours." I was like, "What?" <laughs> like, I get half of my clients are men, sometimes more, and I'm like, "What? Where did you get that idea?" But it's hilarious. So I need to like put something on my website saying my tours are not women only, just because new people are, I guess, quite confused since I started Girls Who Click. I think they get the teen workshops mixed up with my photo tours or something. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Interesting. Only that, that's a catch girls. 22, isn't it? That means that the word's <laughs> getting out about girls who click, but it's bad for tour business. <laughs> <laughs> 
So where can people find information about your tours? On my website. And then the best thing to do is get on my mailing list um, because I'm I'm quite lucky. Well, pre-COVID, I, I shouldn't even say because I'm going to jinx myself. My tours tend to sell out pretty far in advance. But COVID has, you know, rocked that little running I had. So who knows what's going to happen now. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, generally they fill up pretty, pretty far in advance. So yeah, to, to go onto my website, there's a tour page, but then there's like a, um, a mailing list uh, sign up. And that's, I'm, I am guilty of not updating my tour page as often as I should. So the mailing list is like the best way. And what, what's your website? Susie? Oh, it's uh, com. Just try to spell that. <laughs> it's uh, We'll have a link in the show notes so you don't yeah. have to. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, Susie, you've got a couple of other things you have to head off and do, but I do have one thing I want to make sure that we cover, and yeah. that is kind of an exciting announcement about, so we've got, um, this is Nampa's, Nampa's podcast. So we have our annual or biannual summit coming up in a couple of weeks after this podcast airs. That's April 29th and 30th. It'll be our first virtual summit. We've never done an, a virtual event like this before. So this is going to be pretty exciting. Susie is speaking for us. She's one of our keynote speakers, along with several other um, pretty pretty well-known nature photographers. And we've got all kinds of other events going on. We're going to have some networking events. We're going to have um, some portfolio reviews that people can sign up for. And we're going to have a a vendor hall of some sort. Um, But we're also announcing all of our award winners. At the summits, our award winners always announced. And Susie is our Outstanding Photographer of the Year. So she will be receiving that award at, at summit. So if people are interested in hearing your presentation about that and hearing, you know, her acceptance on that award. That's um, a pretty prominent thing that we, that we were really excited about. You're very well deserved uh, of receiving yeah. it and for all the work that you've done. Thanks. I mean, even in the hour that we've been talking, you've talked about how much money you've raised and the girls you're helping and the initiatives you're after, as well as fun stories about baby animals. Yeah. Well, I do, you know, I do my fair share of screwing up like everybody else does, but <laughs> um, can I say how much I love Nampa though? Cause honestly, Nampa, it seriously, it did change my career. Um, when I first started going to Nampa summits and going to portfolio reviews, that's how I met my first editors. That's how I started selling my first pictures. That's how I met my first stock agents. Nampa is like for, I think photographers, especially aspiring, I always tell my girls, you guys need to be members of NAMPA, especially it's awesome because there's student memberships, right, that are affordable for young people. But I think NAMPA is is such a critical uh, part of nature photography, not just for aspiring photographers, but for for hobbyists, for for amateurs, for everybody, right? I just, it's been a, a profoundly good experience like since I was, I think, 20 five i've been going to nampa summits um and my first it was hilarious my first i was shooting slides um do, do we have time for me to tell you this story? absolutely okay sorry yeah. so i was shooting slides when i first started and i sat down at this nampa summit um portfolio review with the editor of ranger rick so i told you how i used to like tear pages out of ranger rick right so like sitting down with susan McElhenney at ranger rick was like <gasps> absolutely terrifying for me and um, something that I just dreamed of. And the fact that I could go in and pay 40 bucks and sit down with this editor was just like, are you kidding me? And I remember I brought her photos of harbor seals because that's what I was working on at the time. And I had like loads of photos of, you know, harbor seal pups, but also mom's giving birth, which, of course, nobody ever published because who wants to see that? But I had the slides out and Susan took the slides and she was like, she's looking at one. She goes, is this a dog hair? And I didn't know Susan at all. And for people who know Susan, she's one of the nicest people on the planet, but I wasn't aware of that yet. So I fully panicked and I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. So sorry. And she was like, is this a black lab? And I was like, yes, actually. And we bonded over black labs and um, I just had the best portfolio reviews. Some of them were brutal and some of them, you know, I learned a lot um, and I didn't get by all means, I didn't go in and get accepted by everybody but that's how I started. It was so integral in starting my career and then finding community and, um, 
yeah, it's just, it's just, I love Nampa and I always will for that reason. Thanks for saying that. I was going to ask how you got involved. Yeah. Yeah. Great organization. I will always be a part of it. Congratulations on your award. That's neat. For sure. Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate that. Anything else, guys? Anything else that we haven't covered? Any? We've covered a lot of, a lot of ground in a short amount of time, to be completely honest. (laughs) Definitely have a lot going on. And, and, you know, that, don't just listen with the intent of hearing just how much Susie's doing. People are asking all the time, how can I, how can I get myself out there? There's so many different avenues, so many different Mm -hmm. opportunities and, you know, be a volunteer for some of these organizations, be a, a mentor for some of these organizations, volunteer your time, volunteer your talent and, and give back a little bit. And I think that, you know, that's my takeaway from the conversation tonight as I just sit and listen to all the little things you've got your fingers in. There's a lot of opportunity out there. There's just not many people that are willing to, you know, put themselves out there that, that much. And I think, you know, kudos to, for that and for the rest of us, just pay attention. Yeah, where right. The, where the needs are, I guess. Yeah, because we can all be of service to this community, right? It's a beautiful community of people, and we can all be of service in some way. I love that. Yeah, and like you said, you've mentioned a couple times about being laser focused. You really have to know what you're working towards. Mm-hmm. Um, I think nature photography, you know, and I tell I tell my own, you know, whether it's a a class or students or, or workshop participants, you know, I always tell them you have to. You know, have a niche, have some something that you're really passionate about. And, you know, you've picked up, you know, whether it's baby animals or, you know, for some of us, it's bigger mammals. Um, you know, have something you're really passionate about because the more you start spreading yourself out and trying to, you know, try all these different things, you know, you start to lose your way a little bit. And I think our photography starts to show that. But if you want to work as a full-time nature photographer, you really do have to stay very, very focused. And I, it, Susan's even told this to me that, you know, Susan McElhenney has mentioned, um, you know, that she has photographers that she works with that only specialize in one animal. And that's all they do because she knows she can go to them and get the photos that, that yeah. she needs. Yeah. They're good photographers, but they have one particular niche that that she knows she can go back to. Um, and I hear that over and over again. Um, so and shooting what you love is always going to be your best work. Always. Mm-hmm. And- you know, I have a passion project every single year. I, I choose a passion project that's my personal project. And it's like, if I don't make any money with this, that's okay. I'll make money with these projects. But this is my personal passion project. And that keeps me going. Because let's face it, like, this is a job like any other. It's, it's a job I love. But there are some projects that I'm more passionate about than others. But I always pick one personal project where it doesn't matter if I make any money out of it. And that's what keeps me going creatively that's a great idea yeah there's always one i'm working on how do you keep i don't want to and i know you you do have to go but how do you keep yourself focused on it i know i have a little bit of a problem like there's a couple of projects right now that i would love to do i'm like oh, i want to do this and i focus on that and then then something else comes up and i'm like oh well you know i feel like i'm missing an opportunity there on something else that i've been wanting to do yeah i think it's um that fear of missing out that FOMO feeling of you know yeah I don't really I'm lucky because I don't have a huge amount of the FOMO thing I know what you mean um my I think with with it's for me it's like um some of my projects take years to come to fruition whether it's permissions or the right female giving birth or whatever it is right and not losing hope is the great challenge for me because some of these projects two years in I'm like this isn't going to happen I'm not going to it's not going to work And some of them truly don't, but for the most part, like if you just stay persistent and stick with it. And so um, I guess in terms of staying, how do I stay active and stay involved? It's not losing hope. The other thing I do is I will, um, this might sound kind of lame, but I look on Instagram a lot for if I start to lose hope, I will go in and I will just look at photos of that subject and it totally will like reignite my fire and my passion for it be like, nope, I'm going to do that subject. It's going to happen for me. Um, and you know, like, you know, 
manifest it for yourself if you have to. But so what? So yeah. what's your passion project for 2021? Um, well, it it was supposed to be meerkat pups, and then oh. all of a sudden they came to fruition. And like, I don't know where are we? We're like March. I didn't have to wait that long, right? So um, I think my next one that I I'm sort of in the right now. I'm in the planning stages, so I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm thinking baby rhino. Oh. Yeah, and that's going to be another long-term project where I have to wait a long time and find the right rhino and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, lots of security issues with rhinos right now, too. Not a good situation right now with COVID and poaching. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so maybe maybe 2021 is the year of rhino for me. Who knows? Yeah, I like how you put that. I think I'm going to steal that from you just to – the idea of having at least one passion project every year, right? It's something that you want to do for yourself. Um, yeah, a lot of artists do that. You know, like artists will work on a a painting for a long time that is they noodle it for a year or something, and it's it's not a painting they're going to sell. It's their personal work, right? So these personal projects, I think, are super important. A lot of a lot of uh, really good takeaways for me on this one, boy. I'll tell you what, lots oh, of pro tips. You. Pro tips. <laughs> a lot of pro tips. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Well, it was really a pleasure to talk to all of you. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank you, Susie. Thanks. Yeah, for, thank you. It's really nice to meet on. you. Thanks for transitioning your persistence to getting on this podcast. And... <laughs> yes, the weather and everything else. That was you guys too. That weather was all and that. Skype. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad we all rallied. We made it happen, so I appreciate that. All right. Okay. Thanks a lot, Susan. So, thanks for what you do. See thank ya. you, Susie. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. So thank you, everybody, for joining the Nature Photographer Podcast and listening to Susie Esterhouse talk about her fun world of baby animals. Thank you for joining us here on the Nature Photographer Podcast brought to you by Nampa and Wild and Exposed. And thank you very much for Su- to Susie Esterhouse for joining us tonight and talking about her exciting world of baby animals. Be sure to join us at Summit on April 29th and 30th. You can find more information about that in the show notes as well as on nampa.org. And all of the information about Susie's work will be in the show notes as well. So thank you very much.